0: You may have noticed that the cost of a yellow cab ride went up this week. We can debate the need for a fair hike. It's much harder to debate the vibrancy taxis have added to the color of the city's fabric. Taxis are as much a part of New York City as skyscrapers and street vendors. Good morning, I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. This week's show is devoted to taxis and to the people who drive them. Hurry up and get in. The meter's running. When your job involves driving in New York City traffic, it helps to have a sense of humor. Jim Peach spent seven years behind the wheel of a yellow cab. He would greet all of his fares the same way by asking, heard any good jokes lately? Jim says he always jotted the good ones down and his efforts paid off. Jim now has three joke books on the market, The New York City Cab Driver's Joke Book, The New York City Cab Driver's Joke Book, Volume 2, and The New York City Cab Driver's Book of Dirty Jokes. Jim recently dropped by our studios for a chat. Jim Peach, thanks for coming in. My pleasure. So, know any good jokes?
1: Yeah, did you know that if uh, Oprah Winfrey married Deepak Chopra, she'd be Oprah Chopra?
0: (laughs) I did not know that, but now I do. Now, you were a musician before you became a cab driver, How did you end up being a joke book writer?
1: Well, I'd loved jokes all my life. So to support my musical career, I wound up driving a cab, as many musicians do. And uh, I figured that one of the fringe benefits of the job would be that I'd hear all the best jokes in the world. So I started asking everybody who got in my cab, have you heard any good jokes lately? And one thing that really surprised me was that 90% of the people that I would ask would say they couldn't remember jokes. And it had always come so naturally to me that I just assumed everybody could do it. And uh, fortunately, the other 10% of the people were people like me, where if they knew one, they knew 100. So they started keeping me in really good supply. So I started thinking, well, gee, here I am in the situation where I have a talent that I didn't realize that I had before, and I'm hearing all the best jokes in the world. I should write a book and share them with everybody. So I just started you know, taking down notes at uh, you know, stoplights and in traffic jams, you know, write a few words about the, the joke. And then I would tell it to people when they got in the cab. And then, uh, you know, it just wound up, you know, getting to be this huge collection.
0: But it was really by chance that you found a publisher.
1: Yeah. One night uh, this woman got in my cab and I said to her, as I said to everybody, have you heard any good jokes lately? And she gave me the best answer I ever got. She said, you go first. So I was like, all right, I got a live one here. So we started trading jokes back and forth. And after a while, she said, you know, so many great jokes, you should really write a book. And I said, I'm going to. And I showed her my little notebook of all my joke notes. And she said, well, I'm an editor for Warner Books. And she gave me her card. And I took a proposal into her two weeks later. And she called me back the next day with an offer.
0: These are three books. I mean, three books full of jokes. You must have how many of them?
1: Well, it's over 400 jokes in every book. There are some repeats in the Dirty Joke book. What have been some of your favorite jokes through the years that are included in these books? first of all you should never really start a joke with this is the greatest joke ever you know you never try to hype a joke too much but um uh one of the clean ones was about a little kid uh it's in his class and the teacher asks she says um children do you know where jesus was born and he says pittsburgh she says no and he says philly she says no It was in Bethlehem. And he says, darn, I knew it was in Pennsylvania.
0: (laughs) I would think that you have had to have heard many ethnic jokes through the years.
1: When I was writing my first book, my editor, um, who is Jewish, we were trying to figure out which jokes to put in the book. And we um, basically decided that if a person of that ethnic group could tell that joke and, and laugh about it, then we would... You know, we would put it in the book, but um, we didn't put in any jokes that were based on meanness. You know, that, that to me isn't funny.
0: Give me an example of one
1: that did make it into the book. Did you hear about the new Japanese Jewish restaurant?
0: Mm-mm.
1: It's called Sosumi. I got to give you a cab driving joke. Uh, this cab driver was driving down the road and he looked over and he saw the Pope frantically hailing him. So he swerves over, and the Pope jumps in, and he says, "Look, you got to get me to Kennedy Airport. My limo just broke down. I got to catch that last plane to Rome." Cab driver says, "Great." So they start driving along, and it's rush hour, and they're hitting some traffic, and the Pope's going, "Come on, come on! I got to get that plane." And the cab driver says, "Well, look, you know, there's only so fast I can go. I'm going to get a ticket." And the Pope says, "Look, I'll make you a deal. Let me drive." The cab driver says, "You want to drive the cab?" Pope says, yeah, let me drive. And he says, how can I say no to you? You're the Pope. So the cab driver gets out and goes around to the back seat. The Pope gets out and gets around to the front seat. As soon as the Pope is behind the wheel, it's pedal to the metal. He's flying through the streets, running red lights, driving up on sidewalks. The cop sees him and pulls him over. The cop gets out of his uh, squad car, walks up to the stopped cab. The Pope rolls down the window. The cop looks in and sees him, and he goes, "Uh, uh wait right here. I- I'll be right back. So he runs back to his squad car, gets in, and he calls up his sergeant. And he says, hey, Sarge, I just pulled this guy over. I'm not sure if I should give him a ticket or not. I think he's really important. And he says, well, well, who is it, the mayor? And he goes, no, I think he might be more important than that. And he says, well, what is it, the governor? And he says, I think he might be more important than that. He says, what, did you pull over the president? He says, I think he might even be more important than the president. The sergeant says, well, who is it? And he goes, I don't know, but the pope is his driver. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good yeah. one. I like that one, too, because it's the, the cab drivers is the big shot.
0: How many years did you spend behind the wheel of a cab?
1: Um, seven years part-time, three days a week. I used to work Wednesday, Friday, and Sunday.
0: I would imagine you have many strange but true stories from when you were a cabbie.
1: Yeah, yeah, I have some uh, pretty interesting stories. One night I uh, picked up uh, Robin Williams and Christopher Reeve and their wives. That was a really funny time, and Robin Williams was just as funny as any time I've heard him on TV or anything. He was hysterically funny. He was sitting in the back with their two wives, and Christopher Reeve was sitting on the seat next to me. Obviously, this was before his accident. Robin Williams and I were trying to stump each other on, on jokes. He would say, have you heard the one about? And I'd answer with the punchline, and I'd say that to him, and he'd answer with the punchline. And it was a fairly long fa- fair, about um, 15, 20 minutes, and we only got each other on one joke each. When they got out, I didn't have a book to give to them, so I asked them if they would sign my book. So they signed it, and I looked at what Robin Williams had written afterwards, and it said, you give great hack, Robin Williams.
0: Now, as far as driving a cab, you don't do it anymore. No, no. I read though that you do renew your hacks license every year. Is that true?
1: I do do that. Yeah, yeah. It's a nice little insurance policy. And uh, one cab driver said to me one time, he said, "Because you know, after after work, I would always take a cab home." And one cab driver said to me, he said, "I love this job for three reasons. Number one, every day is payday." I come home with that cash in my pocket at the end of every night. Number two, I take a break when I want to. I don't have a boss looking over my shoulder. I can do whatever I want. Number three, I work when I want to. I used to get fired for that. Jim Peach, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you.
0: If you want to learn more about Jim and his joke books, he's online at nyccabdriversjokes.com. Some fares share jokes, but others become the brunt of them. We found some cabbies on a late-night break at a Manhattan deli who were getting a chuckle out of their drunk passengers. They also talked about some other challenges they face on the night shift.
2: My name is Abdul,
0: and
3: I'm a cab driver, and I work at nighttime. First, I start... Because I was uh, going to school, to the college, so I have to drive at night time. Daytime, I have to go to school. So since that time, you know, I used to drive at night, you know, and I say at night time. We don't get tickets, you know, at night (laughs) time. Yeah, it's not like daytime. Daytime is very easy to get a ticket. It's not like night time is. uh, And also there is like rules before seven. You cannot make some turns and uh, something after seven, then you can make it. There is less traffic, less pollution. Like in daytime, there's too many buses, big trucks. My name is Mohammed Elbaz. I'm a taxi driver in New York City. I work overnight. We got problem with the people who, who drink, you know, a lot. Some people just, you know, like, uh, they open up the, the, the cab, they throw up and, and close it, and they walk away. The most interesting thing is when you pick up someone who doesn't know where, he doesn't I remember his address anymore, you know. And you just have to go, you know, to try to get him where he lives. They keep saying, just take me home. Where is home? You know what I'm saying? I uh, just go, I want to go home. But I don't know your home, so you have to tell me where. And it's a little bit scary, you know, like at night time, you know, like going to the Bronx at 4 a.m., picking up like uh, four guys or, you know, I'm saying three guys, it's, it's it's very hard a little bit. Sleeping is, it's, uh, it's kind of uh, very hard to, to sleep at daytime and you have to find the, the good place and the good spot to sleep.
0: You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Many immigrants drive cabs to get on the road to the American dream. But what prompts someone to drop out of Yale to become a hack? Guy and Knight provides this essay.
4: Now that I'm over the initial thrill of driving a taxi, I don't force conversation with my passengers. The ones that want to talk inevitably break the ice in the same way. You know, you're the first white cab driver I've ever had. I have a practiced reply. Actually, we make up about 10% of drivers, a fact I picked up from an official Taxi and Limousine Commission study. Usually the passenger will ask me how I got into the industry. Well, I dropped out of school last year and I needed a job to make ends meet. I'd always wanted to drive a cab, so here I am. Where were you in school? Some of them will press. Here I pause and then rattle off. I did undergraduate at the University of Chicago, got a master's degree at Oxford, and I left a PhD program at Yale. I studied medieval monks. At this point, my fare in the backseat is no doubt terrified that I'm about to set off on a rant about society's ills. Only mine is more tiresome because of its opaque references to obscure theologians. But mostly, they're curious about one thing. Why did you leave? Why would someone leave great institutions of higher learning for the life of a hack? I don't explicitly quote Travis Bickle, the disenchanted antihero from the movie Taxi Driver, because people would jump out of the cab, but his words have made an impression on me. All my life needed was a sense of some place to go. I don't believe that one should devote his life to morbid self-attention. I believe that one should become a person like other people. As a graduate student, my life was entirely dedicated to studying a group of monks called the Carthusians. They were some of the most secluded, strict monks of the Middle Ages. For a year or two, I think I was the world's expert on their early history. Putting myself in seclusion, studying people who kept themselves so apart from the world, I felt like I was drifting away. I was a million miles away from my girlfriend, from the city, from things that I thought would matter in my life. I needed to leave and reconnect. ¶¶ Most people walk out of a midnight showing of Taxi Driver in a deep depression. But I bounded out beaming, inspired. I remembered that I had always wanted to drive a cab, to be a part of the city's secret underbelly. I needed that direction now, so I decided to do it. A few weeks after I walked off of Yale's Gothic campus, I was back in the classroom. This time, a windowless basement room at a community college in Long Island City. I could never work up much enthusiasm for classes on medieval law, but I had trouble sleeping before taxi school. I arrived 15 minutes early and watched my fellow aspirants filter into the room. I was clearly the only American, and everyone glanced at me nervously, wondering what the hell I was doing there. After 10 minutes of waiting, our instructor strode in. He was every inch the crusty New York hack. Immense, round belly, big shock of white hair, thick Russian accent. I have driven cab 20 years, he started. I love it. I was hooked from the first words. Here was the mystical connection with the heart of the city I desperately craved, the low door in the wall that had eluded me in graduate school. The first day of taxi school covered passenger interactions. Some of this stuff was self explanatory, helping old people in and out of the cab, smiling, dealing with luggage. But he also covered the touchier subjects, such as dealing with women. Don't yell at them for being out without a husband at night, he advised, but do wait for them to get into their building. He also instructed us on dealing with whom he termed the gays. He went through the entire taxonomy of the gays, their habitat, West Village and Chelsea, their mating habits, Sometimes they ask you to come up. Other times they'll stroke your hand when they give you the fare. And their garb, some dress like girls, some don't. You can't tell. At the end of these words of wisdom, our instructor summed up the lessons of the morning. In America, everyone is equal. He's much better this way. We broke for lunch, and I went across the street to buy myself a sandwich. One of my classmates, a Pakistani, was there too. Eager to fit in with my new peers, I went up to him to talk about how great and inspiring the class was, but he beat me to the punch. Wasn't that crap? He went through the whole morning and didn't teach us anything. I just want to get the license and start making money. I didn't know how to respond. If I wanted to, I could pluck up the courage to ask my parents to support me while I looked for a real job. For this guy and everyone else in the class... The taxi was the real job. As the day went on, I learned more about my classmates. One worked at a kebab cart on 6th Avenue. One was a mechanic at a taxi garage, and starting to drive was a big step up. Some other students couldn't have been more than 16. They had clearly lied about their age to get the license. I was thrilled to be in this new environment, filled with an energy that graduate school lacked entirely. But I wondered if they all saw me as an interloper. Taxi school came and went, and I passed my exam and got into a yellow Ford Crown Vic, mine for the 12 hours of my shift. The 3 a.m. wake-up calls quickly became the high points of my week. I loved biking to my garage in the dark, cruising the city streets in my cab. Driving was real. When I made mistakes in my early days, the fare's irritation was an exercise in immediate reward and punishment. My first time going into Williamsburg, it took me 15 minutes to find the entrance to the westbound BQE, while my fare nagged me to ask for directions. These disasters were entirely different from the relative safety of academia, but slowly I began to learn the city, to think less and drive more. As I grew more confident in the front seat, I continued my attempts to befriend my fellow drivers. The airport holding lots serve as on-the-job lounges, where you can see the whole spectrum of New York hacks. The Sikhs march purposefully up and down the lanes in little knots. Pakistanis play cricket with a beat-up bat and tennis ball wrapped in electrical tape. West Indians sit inside and slam dominoes down on unsteady tables. Russians quietly smoke and play backgammon. But I stand and watch them, not a part of any of their circles. One day, I did start up a conversation with a cabbie next to me in line. He turned out to be a KGB astrophysicist, an exile from the former USSR. I was so chastened to meet an actual PhD that I slunk away and buried my nose back in my book of medieval history. I always felt more comfortable with my passengers. Sometimes, I start up the long, invested conversations with them that I can't with other drivers. A few weeks ago, I picked up a young woman from LaGuardia going to Boreham Hill, near my neighborhood of Carroll Gardens. We were talking about Brooklyn when she mentioned that she had an ill child waiting for her at home. Is he going to get better? I asked. No, this is kind of a lifelong condition. He was born without a diaphragm, so he can't breathe on his own. The doctors put in a Gore-Tex replacement, but he still needs lots of attention. I was stunned. Did you know about this before he was born? She said that they had found out halfway through the pregnancy, but they had decided to carry the baby to term. I hope you don't mind my saying so, I hesitatingly offered. But I think you made the right choice. I mean, this is going to change your life, and I really think you're going to emerge a better person. Devoting yourself to a calling that sometimes seems impossible can only strengthen you. I was thinking of my Carthusians. We talked for a bit longer, but soon enough we had pulled up in front of her home. The fare was $26, and she put some folded bills in my hand. It was really nice to meet you, I said to her. Good luck. She smiled, turned, and walked away, back to her life and her sick son. Some people think I drive on a lark. I come to hacking with the same detachment I brought to my monks. But my life needed a sense of someplace to go and someone to go with. And every time a new fair gets into the backseat, I have one.
0: That's former graduate student Gaia Knight, who can safely say he knows more about Carthusian monks than any other cabbie. There are currently about 13,000 yellow cabs on the streets of New York City. The yoke-colored vehicles have been around in one form or another for some 40 years. But some are now looking to the future. Designers, planners, automobile manufacturers, and the Taxi and Limousine Commission are all working together to develop the next generation of taxi. The Design Trust for Public Space is part of the effort, which is called Taxi07. I spoke to the group's executive director, Deborah Martin. Deborah, thanks so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Why is the time right for the yellow cab to get a makeover?
5: You know, as a city, we've gotten to the point where we need to have taxi vehicles. There's 13,000 taxis that roam the streets every day, 24-7. And while the system works really pretty well in general, I think um, given that the taxi is one of the greatest icons of the city. I think it's time for the taxi to stand for things that we really care about in the city, like sustainable transportation, like accessibility for all sorts of people, and like good designs.
0: Tell me about Taxi 07 and the call for designs that has gone out.
5: Taxi 07 is an effort being organized and managed by the design trust. It's called Taxi 07 because 2007 is the 100th anniversary of the first taxi in New York City, the first gas-powered taxi. The first part is a master plan, which is a kind of 10-year plan that we're doing with the Taxi and Limousine Commission that will help them to set goals for improving taxis over the next 10 years. The second part is an exhibit at the Javits Center. It's going to be part of the New York International Auto Show. And that exhibit will showcase between 8 and 10 taxi prototypes. So we sent out a call to auto manufacturers, big and small, including really big companies like Chrysler and Kia, and some startups like a company called Standard Vehicles that's actually the presenting sponsor of our exhibit, who are making a purpose-built taxi from the ground up. And we asked them to look at every aspect of the taxi from the micro to the macro. So they're rethinking things like, how the roof light can be more legible so that someone from out of town doesn't have to know the kind of tricky symbolism of the light-on, light-off thing, how the taxi can be wheelchair accessible, how the taxi can be more fuel-efficient and, or even totally electric.
0: So there is a wish list of features that you presented to manufacturers.
5: Oh, yeah. We have very specific um, things that we would like to see. And topping the list are making the taxi more environmentally sustainable and making it accessible.
0: Have any preliminary ideas already come in?
5: Oh, yeah, we have, I mean, um, the exhibit is being designed as we speak, and actually we're pinning down final design soon because it's going to go into construction. They are just going to debut in New York a vehicle that is fully wheelchair accessible, that has a ramp that can be pulled out easily. The vehicle itself, the footprint of it, is no larger than the footprint of the Crown Victoria. So the wheelchair rolls, rolls in the ramp, it turns forward, and it locks down in the position of where the, passen- the front passenger seat would be. We also have um, a bunch of New York industrial designers, including um, Smart Design, Bursal and Sec, Antenna Design. Local industrial designers are joining with us to redesign components so that even in the near term, as uh, new vehicles roll out, we could have a better, let's say, Crown Victoria with improved roof light, improved partition, um, meter, that sort of thing.
0: Let me ask you this, Deborah. In the future, will taxis still be yellow?
5: Yes. I think I can say pretty confidently that um, there there's a, a strong feeling both in the taxi community and um, in, in the industry and in, at the TLC and really among the public that that particular color is the taxi brown. And it's interesting. There are other cities. We, through doing this project, I've talked to people in Miami and Chicago and San Francisco, other cities that have taxis, and their taxis are yellow, too. And when you ask them why, they say, well, that's what the New York taxi is, yellow. So I don't see that changing, although some have suggested that they should be green as the vehicles themselves become more environmentally sustainable. But I, I don't see that happening.
0: I must say, I can't remember what city I was in, but I saw a pink taxi and it didn't work for me.
5: Yeah, I've had that experience. It's true. It's like you, it's almost in, you know, if you've been in New Yorker long enough, it's kind of in your DNA that uh, they should be yellow. And the truth is, if you look at a window in Manhattan, you know, that's the color that marks our streets.
0: Deborah Martin, more information at Taxi07.org, right? That's right. Deborah Martin, thanks so much.
5: You're welcome. It was my pleasure.
0: Deborah Martin is the executive director of the Design Trust for Public Space. Once again, you can find more information about the push to transform the yellow cab at Taxi07.org. Not all taxis in the city have wheels. For some commuters, the best way to get to work is on the high seas. We recently visited New York Water Taxi to learn more.
2: My name is Brian Polero. I'm from uh, Bayonne, New Jersey. I'm a captain. I've been with this company about two and a half years, been in the harbor close to four years total. In the morning, we start the first pickup from Hunter's Point. We kind of do what's considered a large triangle from Hunter's Point to East 34th Street, down to Williamsburg, uh, Fulton Landing, and to Pier 11. That's considered one trip.
3: My name's Robert, and uh, I live at 34th Street, and the water taxi is incredibly convenient for me because it takes me straight to work on Wall Street. funny thing is, actually, I've, I set up a business, and part of the decision of where the office was was that I could use the boat every day to go to work <laughs> because it makes life very enjoyable. Just take a boat there and back, get out of the traffic of the city and relax for 15 minutes.
2: boat is capable of uh, just over 30 knots. Depending on the current, we could be uh, cruising anywhere between 20 and 25 knots just to maintain a safe, um, a safe speed where we're not putting too much stress on the engines. Across the East River from Hunter's Point to 34th Street is maybe three or four minutes. Um, from Pier 11 to Hunter's Point, uh, if we're just cruising and we're not in a rush, maybe 10, 12 minutes at most weather's bad, we have GPS and radar. Um, we usually are glued to those. Um, radar can tell you who's who else is around you, who's coming at you, who's, who's going with you and the GPS is basically a uh, digital map we just follow and uh, we can pretty much tell where we are.
0: My name is Sandra Vasos. I'm born and raised in New York and I'm on the taxi as a commuter. I commute to Wall Street from Queens. I changed jobs and, and my new job now is downtown on Wall Street and a friend of mine just said hey, you know, there's a water taxi and it takes you from Long Island City to Wall Street and um, it turned out to be true and I started commuting. It would take me, I think, over an hour on the subways, uh, on a couple of trains going from Astoria to Wall Street. This is, um, I think, a 10-minute ride, 10 or 15-minute ride. This is very easy. It was, it was a little bit strange. You know, I've been in the subways my entire adult life, so it's a nice adjustment to be above ground.
2: I uh, started out as a deckhand for a while and uh, just kind of worked my way up, um, got my seat time, and, and started taking the test and going to all the classes to get my license. Some people think it's kind of cool. Some people think it's, oh, why do you do that? But it's, it's not bad not in a cubicle, that kind of takes a lot off of it. Um, It could be very interesting. A lot of weird things do happen. You get your occasional helicopters crashing in the river, people off of bridges. Uh, You see some pretty weird stuff floating out here. Just stuff like that on the average day that a lot of people probably wouldn't hear about or see. But uh, it, it keeps you moving, so I don't get too bored.
0: You can find out more about New York Water Taxi at nywatertaxi.com. And I've heard
3: all those stories about the black
0: and the way they drive. That's it for this week's Cityscape. Some of you may remember that last year, Cityscape profiled the matchmaking cabbie, a local hack who helps passengers find true love. You can find that piece and others in our archives at WFUV.org. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Jody Avergan. Have a great weekend.